0: And do you know what the most common luxation is? I do not. See, it's I a,
1: had so much to say in the last podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a rostrodorsal uh, luxation. So, in about 87% of the cases. So, uh...
2: sorry for saying sorry, media presents the PER podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek.
0: Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and uh, this is the second episode that I have with Dr. Kelly talking about recent articles, and we have uh, three articles uh, that we're going to discuss in the per podcast. So welcome again, Dr. Kelly
1: everyone so nice to be here again and we're having our I call it our mini journal club almost right I know this is an exciting
0: it's always always fun to talk with someone else about things that you read and Mm -hmm. I, I you know what I like I don't have a lot of time to read so this really forces me to read some articles and look at things that are of interest yeah and because this is a podcast that serves everybody sometimes you have to talk about internal medicine things and in the surgery. It's one of my favorite journals. Uh, so Dr. Mar- Margie Sherk is the head editor. She does such an amazing job with this journal. So um, so the next article, are you ready?
1: Yes, I am. And you get to oh, take time since I picked yes. last time. <laughs> yes,
0: let's focus a little bit more on the surgical aspects right now. So this article is the CT characterization and classification of feline temporomandibular joint trauma or TMJ trauma. And they had 79 cats. This is by Dr. Mestrinho, I think, uh, and lots of other, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: other authors. And the last author is Dr. Richard Meeson. Coming out
1: uh, of Portugal. Very nice.
0: Yes. So uh, this article is from Portugal uh, and from Lisbon. Uh, from the University of Lisbon, but there's a lot of different uh, schools that helped Wisconsin, I see,
1: London, Cornell,
0: yeah. and uh, you know, if you want to get 78 or 79 cats with TMG problems, uh, you probably have to look for a while. Uh, <laughs> I so. Often, uh, oh, so. so my question is, how often have you seen in your practice a TMJ luxation or a fracture? 23
1: years, never see <laughs> so this this
0: is one, one of those those zebra uh, things that you have I, I, think I do so. think that you have to live I know there's an article in Turkey that uh, described this uh, especially luxations uh, for for cats that fell out of, of, from great heights yeah. so that's one of the reasons that that this can happen but uh, I think this is one of the first uh, articles that uh, that really describes uh, the patterns of injuries occurring mm-hmm. in these cats. And, uh, and, and and big difference that this article has is that they use CT instead of radiographs. So, uh, so they do a cross-sectional study. It uh, was carried out uh, in adherence with the stroke guidelines. Do you know what guidelines those are?
1: No. <laughs> is not awful.
0: And and I do, and I looked it up, but then I clicked it away. So these are epidemiology guidelines that when you do these studies, hey, Chippy, stop it. (laughs) The little dog is taking, uh, wants my attention right now. But uh, so these guidelines, let me type it in. Once again, we're live here. Um, So these are guidelines for reporting observational studies strengthening the reporting of observational studies in epidemiology that's the uh, acronym stroke,
1: stroke.
0: and uh, so yeah we learn every day here um, yes but uh, <laughs> yeah so that that is shortly said so they use a, a a obviously uh, a set of, uh, of ways how they looked at the data. I, I always like that. Yeah.
2: Uh, and,
0: and, and then they have six institutions that we talked about that they used to starting in Lisbon. Um, a couple of data, uh, summary, summary data is that uh, these injuries are normally, normally unilateral in about 70% of the cases. Uh, and then in uh, about 60% of the cases, the condyle was fractured. Uh, in in about 160 TMJs. Um, and then luxations was around 33%. Um, and do you know what the most common luxation is?
1: I do not. See, I... Had so much to say in the last podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a rostrodorsal uh, luxation. So in about eighty-seven percent of the cases. So, uh, and then to summarize a little bit, the majority of the fractures are of unknown cause, but of which they knew the cause. It is uh, what they call an RTA or road traffic accident. Mm. Uh, we call it an HBA hit bike or HBC hits by car. Yeah. Um, and then uh, an animal interaction, which m- most of time means one animal bites the other, uh, and then uh, external forces uh, and high-rise trauma. So those are the, the most common uh, yeah. common reasons for uh, for 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 these injuries. And it's interesting when when they were talking about uh, in their introduction, they were talking about the team J joint um, and. Uh, and also that there were some articles before, uh, but they mainly mentioned uh, HBCs or RTAs, road traffic accidents and high rise trauma. But they also said because they only use radiographs, they probably missed a couple of yeah. injuries to the joint yeah. itself. And, uh, and there's a pretty high prevalence of ankylosis after TMJ trauma, up to 10%, which I think thought was very very interesting so that might be because they couldn't diagnose the exact um, thing that was happening in uh, in these cats so uh, you being an expert in cats and having not seen any of these cases right. uh, it's it's pretty uncommon I guess then
1: yeah well and you look at the, the dates they were here from 2007 to 2021 so th- That's a long time
0: to Yeah, that's always a good indication of uh, how few cases you have. The RVC had in that time period 34 cases. So that was the highest. Um, But we're talking uh, like 10 years. So that's three cases a year in a huge referral center because they are are a big referral center in the UK. Um, And then the others were around 10 in that time period. So that's one a year. And that's a referral hospital, so I can imagine that, you know, in your general practice, you don't see these these that often. Maybe when you live in New York or in another place where they have lots of high rises, it's uh, it's more common.
1: Well, I sometimes wonder too, like when cats come in with that severe of an injury, at least in my city, that they have significant head trauma, and caregivers don't have the funds to move forward, and the cat may have a bad prognosis. Yeah. So, you know, I may have seen one and I didn't know it because there was such bad trauma that the cat was euthanized. Yeah. Um, so you wonder sometimes, right? Cause they're not, not, not everyone's going to be going full force with the diagnostics because there may be significant other injuries associated with that hit by car, fell off a balcony that they actually don't move forward with anything except humane euthanasia.
0: Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, And when you are in a referral practice, probably those owners are more dedicated anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To go further. Yeah. So they looked at CT images of uh, uh, like 79 cases. Uh, Three people reviewed them, and then they had a nice classification of uh, TMJ injury. One, of course, the luxation, and you can either luxate rostral, dorsal, or ventral caudal, and it's much more common to. Do the rostral, dorsal, and then they classified the fractures, and we won't get into the details. But what I do like is that they have some really nice pictures in this article. So please go to these articles, and uh, and these are at you know freeware, so you can see them online, uh, mm-hmm. or you need to be part of uh, ISFM. I it depends a little bit uh, if if you uh, if you're able to see them, but uh, you know for me. Uh, being part of AFP or ISFM and then getting this journal is, is a great perk. And so it, would, anybody yeah, that, that it will be open have.
1: access next year.
0: Yeah. Forever. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. They that's just awesome. made
1: that announcement uh, recently. So.
0: Yeah that's a that's great news because i yeah. think everybody should read these these articles
1: absolutely
0: uh, of the luxations uh, 87% were rostrodorsal dorsal and four so that's 13% were caudal ventral um and um, in the 88 mandibular fract or condyle fractures uh, 105 injury types were observed so of which most were intraarticular and I think that that is important to know. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of things that you can do with an intra-articular fracture of uh, of the TMG. I think the only thing you can do is whack it out. Uh, but I'm not totally sure because I, I was trying to look into the literature a little bit of repair techniques that they yeah, had for the yeah. TMG joint, and there's not a lot published there. Yeah, and
1: I was going to ask you, like, what's the prognosis for some of these? Are they good if he you, has know, I, rose. you know that can't I,
0: move its jaw what happens no no a cat can a dog can live without a tmg joint as a matter of yeah. fact there's a lot of uh, a lot of problems there the, that's often the therapy that you can do so right. uh, and and they do pretty well um you, you the only thing you want to prevent is that you get uh, chronic uh, ankylosis there so they can't open their mouths. Anymore.
1: right yeah
0: so, uh, and uh, and yeah, so so those are the, the main the main causes we talked about. So uh, the road traffic accident is probably the number one. Uh, and then uh, that was in about 30% of the cases. No, no, sorry. That was about, yeah, 32% of the cases. And then 30% of the cases, they had no clue what happened with the, with the cat, which is not uncommon, I guess.
1: That's <laughs> right. Cats don't tell.
0: Interesting to see that uh, bilateral injury was significantly associated with high. Rice trauma so i can yeah. see smack their face that it it, uh, it happens on both sides um, and then in the uh, the hit by cars the most frequent lesion was uh, the temporal bone fracture so i i looked at uh, at another article which was written in the canadian veterinary journal by the way very cool. Um, I think it was a uh, yeah the CVG. yeah and it yeah. was uh, called Veterinaire Dentistry Dentisterie Vétérinaire <laughs> and it was uh, Temporomandibular Joint Luxation in the Cat Diagnosis and Management. So this talks a little bit about the management also, and they have a a, a cool way of dealing with uh, with these uh, luxations. Do you do you know how they do it? So they they really try to do a close reduction uh, and and they tell, they say that you have to do it as soon as possible. uh, And because if if it's chronic, it might be really difficult to get it back in. So Mm. you anesthetize the patient. So you don't do this in the uh, awake patient, which you can imagine. And then you have to put a fulcrum um, into the mouth and you create that by placing a, a wooden pencil between the fourth premolar and the mandibular first molar and then very you cool. close the rostral mandibles and maxillae carefully with manual pressure and then the dole you turn the dole very gently rostrally and then you release the mandibular condyle from the articular eminence of course you can only do that when it's a dorsal which is most of the time and then it pops it back. So it sounds really easy. I have in my career, and of course I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I've never had the pleasure of having to do this. No. But if you want more information, uh, uh, obviously you need to take radiograph to see if the reduction is okay. You have to move the jaw a couple of times to see if it doesn't pop back, especially in the chronics. And then you have to treat them for pain medication, of course. So, yeah. And, and, and they, uh, they, they, they then put a muzzle around the cat's mouth, uh, or they use these bonding, you know, you can use some uh, dental bonding mm-hmm. if you want to, so the cat cannot open the mouth. And uh, they made a little muzzle, and it's very, very cute. Uh, there's a picture, picture seven in the article that has a little cat muzzle. Uh, on it because you know muzzles in cats they're very difficult to keep on the muzzle itself because the muzzle is not very big and uh, so read the article it's uh, that that is definitely freeware it's the canadian veneer journal september 2017 volume 58
1: so were they putting feeding tubes in, in those cats then uh, the, yes sometimes
0: yeah. they were this is dr graham Tetcher that wrote this article yes they, they okay. do mention the feeding tube uh, as a uh, uh, so because most of the time they leave enough space for the cat to lick up the food. Uh, oh, okay. but, uh, but the feeding tube is an alternative, of course, yeah, especially yeah. When, they t- of when they do the dental bonding of the jaw together, then it's a little bit more difficult.
1: So, so it's going to be harder to medicate your cat too, if you can't open its mouth, right? So having that feeding tube would be nice just to medicate, even just not just thinking about ensuring the cat gets enough calories in a day.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. And in any of the studies that we're discussing today, of course, these are retrospective studies, uh, and uh, there's lots of limitations associated with it. And I really like the fact that they do mention those limitations also in both studies. So uh, well done for these articles. So uh, good job in the team in Lisbon to get all these cats together and you know the number of the more cases you have the the stronger suggestions you can make all right any questions about this article before we go on with the last one
1: no that was a good one
0: yeah i really liked it it's uh you know we don't see them that often so um all right, this one is the online survey to determine client perception of feline chronic lower airway disease management. Responses to therapy, side effects, and challenges encountered by Mathieu Pallin, or Dr. Pallin, and uh, Dr. Kaney, Dr. Cosford. And they were from uh, the Department of Small Animal Clinical Sciences, also from Canada, Western College of Veterinary Medicine, Saskatchewan. And then there were uh, uh, some uh, from vet professionals in uh, in the UK. Definitely. So, uh, what did you think of this uh, article?
1: I, I like this. I mean, it was it's always interesting to learn about people's interpretation of first of all giving medication to their cat, and then mm. what they think is the response, and uh, if they're seeing an improvement. Um, it's interesting so like and like you mentioned in our last podcast when we were talking about hypertension there were a lot fewer people that answered this survey but it was still pretty good to look at the data see what people thought
0: and i learned a new term flat what does flat mean
1: Is this feline lower airway disease
0: yes it is (laughs) i'm guessing
1: because that's not what i've heard before myself other no, than in here. So you know, we always have like all these different terms. Everybody likes acronyms for some reason.
0: Yeah, people love acronyms, and uh, <laughs> and and so, flat is indeed feline lower airway disease, uh, which is quite a wide description of yeah. whatever it could be.
1: Then they were relying uh, on the caregivers to tell that rate, so we didn't have medical records. It was just what the caregivers said.
0: Yes, and that, that's, a, that, that's a very important uh, point. So, so they, they wanted to look at uh, the client experiences associated with the administration of common medication and common medication is then steroids or bronchodilators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I immediately was thinking, okay, how do you get the bronchodilator into the cat? But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and then uh, in cats with feline lower airway disease, And this is also a relatively recent study. Um, And then they wanted to look at client perception to response of treatment and level of satisfaction. And this is pure the client. So this is not a veterinarian saying, hey, he's coughing less or he's looking much better. This is just what the client perceived. Uh, They did a prospective cross-sectional study, uh, online survey to worldwide cat owners uh, caring for a cat with a chronic cough. And then they kind of self-diagnosed if the cat had feline lower airway disease. And they had 153 complete responses uh, with cats with FLAT. Uh, and then we go into the details a little bit. So uh, it's, it's, I think it's interesting. So if you have a cat with feline lower airway disease, are these the two drugs that you would use?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, if we have confirmed inflammation, which is basically, it's going to be inflammatory airway disease. So we want to use something like that steroid to get the inflammation down. And then if they're having the muscle spasm and the airways are tightening down that bronchodilator is very helpful. And it's nice to see that they looked at both the oral and the inhaled therapies, right? Because the inhaled therapy is the way to go. If you can, just like people with asthma, if you can breathe your drug right into the lung where it needs it, Rather than taking it into your stomach and your bloodstream, yes. you should be. I, I, in I really
0: have a question for that. So, so I can see you pilling a cat, and I can see the problems that you have with pilling a cat, and that came out mm-hmm. of this study for sure. But I also know how most of my cats respond that I've dealt with with things that puff. Uh, Mm-hmm. How, how do you train them for that? Because you have to open their mouth and then puff it in there or and don't they completely freak out?
1: It's a process. So, um, I mean, the chambers that they make for cats now, uh, just like a pediatric chamber, you're going to mm-hmm. do the puff of the drug into that chamber first okay. before you ever bring it to the cat and the mask is on into that chamber has a one-way valve. So when you put the mask on the cat's face, they breathe and that one-way valve opens and they get the drug in. Uh, okay, because, so it's
0: not that you do it right in front of yeah, them. No, that uh, would freak,
1: they freak out. I sure. just
0: want to say, yeah, yeah, okay, good,
1: good, yeah. Good. And so uh, I'm not sure what the source is, and I should have looked this up before we had our podcast today. But um, the ISFM has um, an international cat care has a video with Siva, who um, showing how to train a cat to use a puffer. Oh, great! Uh, and the AFP, I think, is going to be sharing that as well at some point. So it it there is a process it's like training a cat to do anything it's it's not you know just slap a thing on the cat's face and hope for the best.
0: Yeah, I just want to say.
1: Which is probably why people I mean it said in here people were less likely to use the inhaled therapy and I think there's that that part of it people are worried about how to train maybe even veterinarians don't really know how and then um, it's expensive to buy those things. Yeah. The the puffer in the chamber. The chamber itself is a relatively expensive investment, and then your puffers are expensive. So, to commit to that, not knowing whether you're going to be able to get that cat to use it, and is probably something I've, I've found caregivers really reticent about. They don't, they're like, mm, I don't want to go there. So, we used to keep a loaner in our clinic, and we mm-hmm. would let people borrow it for a while so they could train the cat. And then, once they were comfortable, they could buy their own.
0: Oh, that's a great um, idea.
1: Yeah, it's a little, little on the expensive side if you don't get them back, or I mean, we would take deposits and stuff. But it just yeah. helped people get a comfort level with it, and then they were, and then they were able to purchase their own and and move forward. So
0: yeah, because one of the things that I thought was surprising first, the responses came mainly from the UK and Canada and the US. Uh, but um, when we talked about the uh, cats, how long they had the problems. Yeah, uh, that was amazing. So that is like, yeah, ten percent was two to six months, but then you go to ten percent in eleven months, two years, thirty-three percent, four years, thirty-three percent, right. and more than five years, twenty-five percent. So that that means that these owners are dealing with these coughing cats or these, you know, cats in distress for a long time already. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, and they, they're really talking about. Loud coughs and more quiet coughs, but also wheezing, uh, swallowing after coughing, open mouth breathing, which we know yeah, is not yeah. very good for a cat, uh, and, and coughing up fluid. So there's a lot of clinical science associated with it. And, and one of the things that came out is that for the cat owner, these therapies definitely had a significant effect in improvement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then the longer that those cats are having those signs before you actually get them under control, the harder it is to get them under control because it's, it's often the inflammation is causing damage in the lungs. So you're going to have chronic damage. You can get a collapse right middle lung lobe and you can have all kinds of problems like bullet formation in the lungs. So yeah, it's amazing how long some of these cats were going on before diagnosis and treatment.
0: Yeah, and in the medical therapy, most of the cats, ninety percent, got uh, the steroids. Uh, only fifty percent uh, got uh, the the dilators, which I was a little surprised about because I think probably better to use them both in these these cats and not s- separately, depending on how bad they are, of course. Um,
1: I think we tend to use the bronchodilators really on an as-needed basis instead of every day because they're they're not really needed that much if you can get the inflammation under control. Yeah. So,
0: and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then, of course, the steroids were mainly administered orally, yeah. and uh, and then the, the bronchodilates were more much more common if uh, if he, if they have an inhalant device to use that uh, for that. Yeah, and
1: um, yeah, of course, and with the oral steroids, you're going to see more side effects, right? So people were reporting more side effects, but less people wanted to use the inhaler. It seemed like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not no, the side effects. I I was a little surprised when I looked at the weight distribution, so uh, I I always thought that cats that were obese would have had more respiratory signs or problems, but, uh, you know, the main main cohort was between three and, I would say, six kilos.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, too, Uh, but there's so many different things that can contribute to that, so... That's yeah. true
0: too. And how common is, is upper res- or respiratory, lower respiratory disease in cats?
1: Well, I think it's uh, it's pretty common, but I think it's overdiagnosed. So I think inflammatory airway or asthma or even chronic bronchitis is somewhat overdiagnosed. And it's one of the things that I get to talk about on VIN a lot because people jump to asthma every time they see a coughing cat, but they, we always need to rule out other things like transtracheal migration of roundworms. Heartworm, because cats get heartworm and they get heartworm associated respiratory disease, which is an inflammatory process in the lungs. Yeah. And very hard to diagnose. Um, and if the cat's not on heartworm prevention, that's a risk. And heartworm itself, they end up developing adult heartworm. And then they can get infections like mycoplasma or lungworm that also cause coughing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been trying to really encourage people to try and get those ruleouts out of the way before you jump to asthma, because we're talking about putting a cat on in steroids for the rest of its life yeah. to control the disease. so
0: Makes a lot of sense. And, and, mm. and most of, of, at least half of the owners also reported adverse effects.
1: Yeah. 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 So we don't you know, yes, really yes. want the cat on that for long-term, unless you're really sure of the diagnosis. And so often now in clinical practice, like the gold standard for diagnosing this is an airway wash, right? Transtracheal. Um, or a BAL bronchial alveolar lavage—that's a mouthful—and um, yeah. if we don't, if we don't do that and we don't have that gold standard diagnosis, then we're doing a lot of assumptions based on X-rays and maybe blood work and clinical signs. And so, are we always sure of the diagnosis too? I wonder sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So most
0: owners were pretty happy with uh, with this treatment. Of course, yeah. you're you're treating symptoms. Eh? You're not really yeah. treating the disease itself. Um, and so uh, 83 out of 100 which is relatively high I think if you look at uh, um, how happy they were um, and then they there were significant differences if they looked at two months after therapy uh, with uh, with these uh, with these two treatments so so in, in principle I think the article shows that clients are really happy with uh, therapy for these uh, lower airway diseases in cats mm-hmm. uh, and um, so I thought that was an interesting article.
1: Yeah. And I do like they nicely explored a lot of the difficulties that caregivers have with pilling or medicating their cats and how it affects their relationship with the cat.
2: So yeah. I think
1: that's something that we don't think about a lot as veterinarians because we're just wanting to get the cat on medication and get it, help them, but get it out of there. But that quality of life and the client's relationship with the cat is often impacted negatively and were people in here that that were concerned about that so
0: yeah no, that makes that makes a lot of sense uh obviously they mentioned some of the disadvantages also of doing just an owner study uh, Mm -hmm.
1: yeah
0: because it's of course interpretation of a person that knows the cat really well but probably doesn't know the veterinary background of the disease uh, really well so so i thought it was a, a really cool article to read um and I want to congratulate uh, the entire team with, uh, with this article. Yeah. Uh, so we just discussed, and i have to scroll up again uh, to find uh, the title of the article, but this was online survey to determine client perceptions of feline chronic lower airway disease management, responsive therapy, side effects, and challenges encountered in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, <laughs> the e-publication before print uh, of Dr. Paulin Caney and Cosford. Any uh, parting thoughts?
1: Parting thoughts on this one in general? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I know. I, I, I think this is a great article to pick because it, it explored so many different things. Like we've talked about not just lower airway disease, but how clients interact and how clients administer medications. Um, yeah i love that
0: i I love the fact that it's viewed from the client Mm -hmm. we always view it from our perspective but this is from the client uh, and uh, so i really like this article it was a nice combination of the three articles as a matter of fact so there's three surveys that are used but in one it was really a a multi-institutional survey where there was you know, 150 pay, but then you have a client survey and then they use a, a VIN survey where they yeah. reach the veterinarian. So there's a different way of doing these things. So, so very yeah, interesting.
1: So really Dr. Awesome.
0: Kelly, thank you so much. This, you, this also welcome. comes to the end of, uh, of this, uh, this episode. We did three articles. Uh, one was about TMGAs. Uh, one was about uh, feline lower airway or flat disease. And uh, the last of the the first one was, of course, uh, one of your favorite topics:
1: blood pressure, hypertension. Blood pressure, yeah,
0: exactly. So, uh, so if you want more information, this is per podcast. Uh, you can find it on our website perpodcast.net, and we're on social media with the handle at perpodcast. So, thanks everybody for listening in, and thank you, Dr. Kelly,
2: once again, thanks, for the episode. Dr. Yola Kerpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options.